It seems you have once again stumbled upon the podcast of Trestler Mennonite Church. While you're here, you can listen to a replay of the sermon from our Sunday morning service. And we produce this podcast so people from our congregation can catch up with any of the sermons they might have missed. We're currently in a series on the book of Hebrews, and the text this week was Hebrews 9, 15 through 22, and the sermon was from May 28th, 2023. So why did Jesus have to die? Um, that's a question that I, I know that people ask sometimes. Sometimes Christians ask it, and it's of course it's a really good question for Christians to ask as we try to understand our faith, try to understand what it means to be a Christian. But also there's this element that we believe in a sovereign and powerful God, and why did he do it this way? Why did Jesus have to die? Of course, sometimes people ask this question who are not Christians, and some are wanting to genuinely understand Christian beliefs and try to, try to see this with their minds. Others are actually seeking and wondering and, and sort of exploring. And, but then some people ask this question a little bit more with an attempt of, of mockery or attack. They're kind of implying, why would a violent God want his son to die? And, and what, what kind of a God do you worship? So anyway... You might have heard this question asked. You might have asked this question yourself. And in some ways, it's kind of a complicated one to answer. I, I did some fast Googling to see what different people say. And you can find famous Christian leaders or Christian churches, ministries, different denominational stances. They'll give, they'll give uh, answers to this. And some are pretty long articles. And, and they're not all exactly the same. I mean, there's certain consistent themes, but... It's interesting that they, they go about it different ways. And so there's a part of me that doesn't really quite like to take on a question like this in a sermon. If, if a theologian can write a whole book on a topic, anytime you try to preach a sermon in 20 minutes, you're bound to miss something that somebody says is important or say something just a bit wrong. And, and... But we're preaching through Hebrews right now. We started October 9. I had to look that up. We're kind of plodding along. We took some breaks for Advent and other things. But we're now in, in a part of Hebrews in which the author does address this question. So if we're preaching through Hebrews, we have to try to address the question at some level, why did Jesus have to die? And actually, if you were here last week, if you weren't, you should have been, but if you were here last week, even though I did not say this question word for word, our passage addresses these kinds of ideas. Why did Jesus have to die? And we, last week's passage was about how Jesus' blood brings cleansing. And when I was reading our passage for today, we're in chapter 9, verses 15 to 22, I guess I, I suddenly began to see that the author of Hebrews is addressing this question, why did Jesus have to die? He's addressing it in a way that I hadn't thought about very much, and in my quick reading of those answers that I saw online, they didn't usually emphasize this point. And yet, this is what these few verses in this section are about. And I thought, that's interesting, and it gave me a little bit of excitement to share about it. And I'm sure I will not answer every question you can ask. Um, you, I have questions of my own, but there is this one piece that I want to emphasize and talk about today about why Jesus died and what that means for us, and how that transforms our life, and how that helps us to follow him more completely. 
not trying to make a comprehensive sermon that would put you to sleep, but one piece from verses 15 to 22. And last week, I put this picture up on the screen to try to show that we are in a small piece of a book. We're kind of at, it felt to me like the top of the arch of a bridge in which the author is talking about how Jesus is a new high priest of a new and better covenant. And that's what he's talking about now, and he's going to get on to holy living, about dealing with our our, um, faithfulness and perseverance before God in times of trials and in times of joy, ultimately for us to be living with God for eternity. But we're in this small section of Jesus as a better priest of a better covenant is is a way of characterizing what's going on there. And so last week we talked about how under the old covenant, the old covenant, the blood of goats and bulls were offered and they would symbolically make people outwardly clean so that they could approach God. But under the new covenant that Jesus brings about, the blood of Jesus makes people truly clean so they're able to actually enter God's presence to dwell with him for eternity. So this is what the author said. With that in mind, he goes on to our first verse for today. And he says, that's why he, talking about Jesus, that's why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people so that all who are called can receive the internal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they had committed under that first covenant. So now as I was studying and reading and trying to see where the author's going and how he's thinking, I realized there's a word in, these, in this verse that, that I need to think about and need to reflect on. And it's the word inheritance. So that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised them. So I... You don't, don't raise your hands necessarily, but I wondered how many of you have received an inheritance. I have not. I've had relatives give me gifts over the years, but nobody has ever put me in their will, and my parents are both living, and so I have never received an inheritance. And I want you to hold that thought there, because I said something intentional in that statement, but, but I want to go a little bit more background, and then we'll come back to this idea of receiving an inheritance. The author of Hebrews writes about the covenant that God made with Israel when he brought them out of Egypt into the wilderness. He writes about this covenant in a way that talks about the promised land as their inheritance. So God or Moses, when he's speaking on behalf of God, refers to that coming land that they're going to go to as their inheritance. An example is from Deuteronomy 12, 8 to 10. He says, you are not to do as we, you are not to do as we do here today. This is a little bit, I'm pulling this out of the broader context. And in the broader context, it seems like the author is trying to say that in the wilderness, they were not able to worship God in the way that God intended for them to worship him in that promised land when they're finally settled and everything is the way God wants it. So I think you could take these first first little clauses here and say, you're not yet able to worship God as he fully intends since you have not yet reached the resting place and the inheritance the Lord your God is giving you. But you will cross the Jordan and settle in the land your God is giving you as an inheritance, and he will give you rest from all your enemies around you, and you will live in safety. So I quoted this from the NIV. Um, Usually I do the NLT, but the NIV worded it in a way that I I felt grabbed my point today. If you read in Numbers and Deuteronomy, you'll see often 
Scripture speaks of that promised land as the inheritance the people of Israel were going to receive. That land was going to be a place of rest, a place of safety, a place of provision. There would be enough food and enough water, enough shelter for the people, and they were going to receive it as part of their covenant with God. And actually, I think at this point, it's worth noting something that I believe every commentary that I read mentioned. In English, the word covenant and inheritance and will, they're they're three separate words, and especially covenant doesn't seem to fit in there. But my understanding is that in Greek, which is the language the author of Hebrews was using, in Greek, the word that is used for a will and the word used for a covenant are essentially the same thing. So a father might write a covenant in which he leaves an inheritance to his child. We would use the word will there. A father would write a will to leave an inheritance to his child. But, but in that language, they're the same way. And, and so in that context, in the old covenant... The old will left an inheritance to the people of Israel, an inheritance that was the promised land. But in our verse 15, which you look for today so far, the author of Hebrews says that the new covenant is giving a new inheritance so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised them. This is not a piece of real estate at this case. This is something much, much more. I think, go back to Hebrews 8, and, and God actually kind of, well, Hebrews 8 actually is referring to a passage from Jeremiah, but it kind of reminds us of what this covenant is and what the inheritance is. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor the need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord. For everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already, and I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. So this new covenant comes with an inheritance that consists of a close and eternal relationship or fellowship with God. I think that's the idea. So so back to 9.15, that is why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people, so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised them, for Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they had committed under that first covenant. So the new covenant brings a new inheritance, not land, but a relationship with God. And it's actually at this point that the author does something interesting that hadn't jumped out to me before and that hadn't registered at least to me until I started studying for this. But go back and think about an inheritance. I had said I had not yet ever received an inheritance because you don't get an inheritance until somebody dies. So my parents have written wills so that when they both die, assuming they have anything remaining, if when they both die, my sister and I will receive an inheritance of whatever they have in their possessions at that point. But we won't receive an inheritance until they die. And we know this. We know this is part of our culture. It's part of the way we think about life. You can read novels about the wicked son who kills the wealthy father because he wants to get his inheritance. He can't get it while the father lives. So this, this concept of you don't get an inheritance until somebody dies is part of the way we think. And that's actually the, what the author of Hebrews says next in verses 16 and 17. He says, now... When someone leaves a will, it's necessary to prove that the person who made it is dead. The will goes into effect only after the person's death. 
While the person who made it is still alive, the will cannot be put into effect. Now, I still kind of read this and I scratch my head a little bit. So if you, if you do too, I think that's okay, or at least you're the same place as me, and maybe together we can figure this out. I think I understand the logic of what the author is saying. The bigger giant point there seems like it's maybe just slightly beyond my full comprehension, but our inheritance is our eternal relationship with God. And God wrote a will or a covenant promising us this inheritance. And the author seems to be saying that we'll never receive that inheritance until the one who wrote it, that would be God, dies. And I think I get the logic there. There's a lot of questions for me, but I think I get the logic. But there's one huge problem that jumps out at me the moment I started to think through this line of thinking. If an inheritance can only be received after the one who wrote the will dies then how could the Israelites back in the day receive their inheritance without God dying? How would that will, that covenant in the wilderness, give them an inheritance until the author who wrote the will dies? And it seems like the writer of Hebrews actually addresses this very question in verses 18 to 22. He seems to be thinking about it, and he says, no, God didn't die, but he gave a gift to symbolize his death. 18 to 22, that is why even the first covenant was put into effect with the blood of an animal. I think the logic is here is even that first will did require the, a death before it could become effective. And that death was the death of an animal. So even the first covenant was put into effect with the blood of an animal. For after Moses had read each of God's commands to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water and sprinkled both the book of God's law and all the people using hyssop branches and scarlet wool. Then he said, this blood confirms the covenant God has made with you. And in the same way, he sprinkled blood on the tabernacle and on everything used for worship. In fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. This is in some ways alluding back to what we talked about last week, just, just prior to this passage. But, but if the logic a little bit earlier here was that for people to receive their inheritance, the author of a will needs to die, then it seems to me that the death of the animals was inadequate. They didn't write the will. But as we, as we think about the idea of what this author of Hebrews is saying to us, he seems to be saying that the old covenant and the actions and the sacrifices and the components of that was a picture of what was coming. So that, indeed, the death of the animals was inadequate, but they were pointing forward to a time when what was truly needed would happen and the real inheritance would become available. In order for the new covenant to be made complete, for us to receive the inheritance that it promises, God himself would have to die. And so God became a human being. He became a human in the person of Jesus, fully God, fully human, and he died. And he rose too, never stop on Friday, but our point for today is that Jesus died. Last week, we talked about how his blood, when he died, it washes away our sins. It makes us holy and righteous. You can go back and find that online if you want to listen, or you can read the scripture. The author's point this week is now that Jesus has died, we can receive our 
inheritance. So there's probably other questions, other concepts in here that are, that are standing out, but the idea seems to be that, well, if we ask the question, why did Jesus die? The focus of this particular part of Hebrews is that Jesus is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they had committed under the first covenant. So the author talked about the blood of Jesus bringing purity, about bringing a cleansing from guilt. That's last week's sermon. Now the author is continuing to talk about how Jesus' death makes it possible for us to receive our inheritance of life and a relationship with God for all eternity. So sometimes, sometimes when people ask this question, why did Jesus have to die? Sometimes they land in some dangerous places. So I know that some people begin to think of an angry God, somebody who was smiting and crushing in his anger, trying to destroy Jesus. And, and, and some people accept that, and then they, they land in a dangerous place of trying to serve a God who they view as angry and smiting and judgmental. Others, others think about this picture of an angry and smiting God, and, they, and so they reject God. They say, if that's who God is, I want nothing to do with him. I think both of these are dangerous, but both of them are based on what I believe to be a false assumption. They seem to arrive at these ideas because they see in Scripture an angry God who smites and crushes. But our passages from last week and this week seem to capture something important, something different than that. People rejected God, and so the fault of the brokenness lies with people, not God. It's the people that broke the system. And there needed to be justice. But if justice was delivered, then the people would have to die because they were the ones responsible for the brokenness. There also needed to be cleansing, but of course, again, what we talked about last week, the people were dirty, they were polluted, they were corrupt, and everything they touch is then contaminated by them. That's the way it works in our world. Our guilt spreads to whatever we touch. So whatever we try to do that's good to redeem ourselves, it just gets contaminated. So there can... Without justice, without cleansing, there can be no relationship with God, but we are stuck. And it seems to me that God looked at the situation and he said, somebody is going to have to die. There's going to have to be blood that flows, and I don't want it to be them because I love them. God alone is big enough to to handle all of the brokenness and the sin and the rebellion that happened. He alone can bring justice. He alone can bring purity. He alone can transform everything. And so he chose to die in the person of Jesus. And that cleanses us from our sins. Last week, it opens the door to our inheritance. That's this week. So why did Jesus have to die? If we want to process this question, I think it's important to remember the concept of what we call the Trinity, that Jesus is God. Fully God, fully human, fully both. This is not a father who who sort of crushed his son in a moment of anger. This is a God who died so the people he loves don't have to. I don't think I'm saying this perfectly. I think it's a decent summary. But as I was reflecting on this, this if this is a right understanding of what Scripture teaches then those of us who are followers of Jesus, those of us who are disciples of Jesus, then actually, I was thinking, what is a disciple? Maybe, maybe that's a question to ask. I asked this 
couple Wednesdays ago, and one young lady answered, and I wish I knew her exact words. She said something along the lines of, a disciple is a real follower of Jesus, somebody who truly tries to live like he lived, which is different than what we, what we hear about when people talk about Jesus or they pretend to follow him. She said, a disciple is a true and sincere follower. And that's not exactly her words, but she is right. Disciples of Jesus seek to serve Jesus, to follow Jesus, to live life like their Lord lived. And when Jesus faced a situation in which somebody was going to get hurt, in which somebody was going to die, he said, I will die so they can live because I love them even though they don't yet love me. That's therefore what his disciples should say as they respond to situations. And it's extremely hard to know how to live this out. It factors into our relationships on almost every level of relationships, anything from a willingness to lay down your own interests or wants when you're dealing with your family or your neighbors, all the way up to giant questions of how to respond when somebody approaches us with anger or violence or trying to do harm to us and everything in between And probably there need to be sermons and discussions on this. And actually, I thought sometimes these are the kind of things where it's best to have conversations with other Christians around a campfire while you can sit there and reflect and talk while God's creation is around you. This is a hard hard topic. What does it mean to live like Jesus, to be willing and able to sacrifice our own comfort, our own well-being, even maybe our own lives for the sake of of that other person, even when that other person hates us. But as hard or big, as difficult as this is, this is is the way Jesus lived. This is the example he showed. And if we are disciples of Jesus, we find ourselves in situations where there is going to have to be somebody who gets hurt. I think the disciple says, I'd rather it be me than the other person because I love that person even when and even if that person still hates me. Kind of a, a mini-sermon within a larger sermon, but that's, that's the application of our passage for today. In our passage, we see that Jesus, God the Son, we see Jesus died so that we could receive our inheritance. He faced death so we could receive life. We should thank him and praise him for that, but he asks us to go and be and to make disciples, and so this is the way he asks us to approach life as well. So in summary, why did Jesus die? Very short answer, so we can live with God. Probably way oversimplified, but I think it's a true statement. What's the application of this? That we should then live with self-sacrificial love for others. Extremely hard, only possible, even, even only possible to begin doing that through the help of Jesus' spirit living within us. And it's also only possible when we're truly confident that we indeed will receive the inheritance that God has promised us and made possible through the death of Jesus on the cross. You have been listening to the Tressler Mennonite Sermon from May 28, 2023. The passage was Hebrews 9, 15-22. Take care.